Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. This is The Opus. It's an exploration of legendary records and their ongoing legacy, not just of their history, but how the music continues to evolve, how it keeps shaping lives, shaking rafters, and embedding itself into our culture. I'm your host, Jill Hopkins. I'm a radio host, a musician, and a DJ and podcast host from Chicago, Illinois. Now, maybe you're a longtime fan that wants to go deeper. Maybe you're a first-time listener looking to dive in. Either way, you're in the right place. Find us at Consequence of Sound or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. I grew up on the south side of Chicago a cultural hotbed in the early 1980s. We lived in a single-family home that my mother grew up in with my grandmother and her seven brothers and sisters. By the time I came along, there were just three of us in the house. My mom was in her 20s, and even though she had a small child, she still liked to party. And she had parties in that house, in the basement. Now picture the early 80s. There's wood paneling on all the walls. There's a lot of holdovers from the 70s. A lot of mirrors. I think there was a small disco ball. I know we had a pinball machine that was stolen from our house at some point, but the basement was a great place to kick it. And, uh, you know, you live in a house, you do laundry, you get to go to the basement, even if you're a kid. Unless the red light bulb was screwed in. Once again, it's the early 80s. Party aesthetics had their own thing. If the red light bulb was screwed in, it was grown folks' time in the basement. But the grown folks that my mom knew had great taste in music. So I was always very curious. I wanted to hear. I had my own little thing going on. Mostly Michael Jackson. But... You could hear great stuff coming from the basement. So after a while of straining to hear through the door, my mom kind of had pity on me and said that I could sit as far down the basement steps as the third stair if the red light bulb was screwed in. From that third stair, I learned a lot about soul music, about R&B, about rock and roll, and uh, smelled some smells that I didn't smell again until I got to high school. That was an 
eye-opening first day of ninth grade. But one of my first big musical memories was Abraxas. Hearing those drums coming from a speaker instead of from, you know, guys we knew at the park by the house. That was a big deal. And one day, I went past the third stair. It was during the day. Okay, no, nobody narc on me. And I took my mom's copy of Abraxas. Maybe it was my uncle's. She did have a lot of siblings. But I took it up to my room and I put it on, I'm guessing, if I'm remembering correctly, it's a Play School brand turntable. The kind that you would just play Puff the Magic Dragon on. And even through those very, very terrible speakers, the bigness of Abraxas came through. I had a very blind love for this album. My uh, reading skills weren't super sharp quite yet. But there was a lot. There was a lot that that album was giving me. And now, I want to give you uh, some context so that you don't keep having a blind love of this album, which you should absolutely love. I want you to have your own red light bulb moment. You get to appreciate this for all that it is. And there's a lot that it is. So let's get into it. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is the Opus. We're diving into Santana and their third studio album, Abraxas. Santana's the name of the band, and Carlos Santana is and was an MFR of a lead guitarist. But to appreciate Abraxas, you have to understand what each of these players brought to the table. And it's a pretty big table. It's like a conference or cafeteria-sized table. Carlos Santana, from Mexico, spent his formative years in Tijuana. His father was a professional violinist. You don't hear those words next to each other for very many people. He's also a band leader, mariachi uh, particularly. And Carlos learned the ropes of performing from him. Carlos also learned that the violin was not his instrument. And I think we're all better off for that. The younger Santana got his stage wings playing at Tijuana Strip Clubs, which is a great band name in and of itself. He was a teenager. And before he moved to San Francisco, um, he learned a lot of lessons. And I think those strip club shows probably prepared him for San Francisco music clubs in the mid to late 60s, more than he could have known at the time. He gets to see blues and jazz musicians at those San Francisco clubs, though. And all those folks are at the tops of their games. Carlos starts working odd jobs and playing guitar in the streets for all sorts of passersby before he decided to dive into music full-time and form the Santana Blues Band. That's when he met David Brown and Greg Raleigh. They were all busking 
on the streets of San Francisco. And then they joined the band, and they stuck around for a while. After they decided to drop the blues band and just be Santana, and after they decided that a dedication to and a mastery of African rhythms, Latin rock, jazz, blues, and salsa, they knew that the players involved had to have influences and techniques from across all those genres and still somehow work together towards a common goal. Carlos Santana likens it to sort of a freshman year. I never went to college because I couldn't afford it, but I, I perceived that it was like being in a dormitory where in this room, uh, Greg Riley would be listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and Michael Carabella would be listening to Sly Stone and Jimi Hendrix, and then over here, Michael Freed would be listening to Coltrane and Miles, and I'd be listening to John Lee, Lightning Hopkins, Jimmy Reed, B.B. King, T-Bone Walker, and then this other person listening to uh, Tito Puente, Eddie Palmieri, you know, so every, every room was, was something to learn from. And while everyone was learning from each other and bringing these very disparate sounds together. They also knew that they had a job to do and a name to make for themselves in a pretty saturated music market. This is Santana's drummer, Michael Shreve. You know, there was one thing that I, I, um, I said in a speech at, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, even though like all around us in the bands in San Francisco, the Grateful Dead, the, you know, Janis Joplin, Jefferson Airplane. I said, as soon as I got in this band, I soon learned that this was no hippie love thing. This was like a street gang and the weapon was music. <laughs> so we weren't messing around. And I figured, I learned in the rehearsals, people weren't messing around. You know, it was like, we're going to get this. We're going to make this like something. And they did. Santana's first album, the self-titled one, definitely made an impact. Evil Ways was a top 10 chart hit, but that album still didn't manage to capture what would be their signature sound or the percussion. The percussion that was the very foundation of Santana. Enter Fred Catero. Fred Catero was a producer and an engineer and Abraxas was his first stint as lead producer but he'd engineered albums from Big Brother and the Holding Company, Sly and the Family Stone, Chicago, the Chambers Brothers, and lots more before Santana approached him. And they approached him because Fred Catero knew drums. Specifically, Fred Catero knew congas. We stayed with Fred Catero because he understood how to record congas in drums because he worked with Mongo Santa Maria. And then we had a feeling that we could introduce him to electric sounds, like electric guitars and amplifiers and stuff like that. So we were all learning together. And Michael Shreve agrees. Carlos is right. He was really perfect for it. He, he had a, a, a great deal of respect from us because he was also a great engineer and he really knew sound. And he was no messing around, but he was not any kind of dictator. He really worked with us and, and got our trust in him. And uh, one of the things that I noticed, like in the mix of these records, like 
the drums, like my drums, they don't really, they're not, they don't stand out, you know, they're down in the mix, but, and I think that that really, the way you mix a record, the way it, it comes out, it's like, it's like editing a film, you know, yeah. it, it tells a whole different story depending on the levels. And, and so I think that he was really terrific. I mean, the, the other engineers were John Fiore and David Brown and everybody did, everybody certainly did their part. So Fred was a pleasure to work with all the time. Musicologist Mark Brill from the University of Texas, San Antonio, puts it this way. Yeah, Fred Katera, of course, is the uh, the George Martin figure, if you will, George Martin being the, the, the producer of the Beatles. Um, and uh, he let the, the vision flow, I think, right? And he was in the same way that George Martin did with the Beatles. And, and it really allowed the, the creativity to come through, but not, not the absurd freedom that they'd had before, mm -hmm. right? Not that, not the jam band feel, right? And so, just putting a lid on it where where necessary, but also allowing the creativity to to flow where necessary, um, was was you know the magic formula. There are several tunes in Beatles tunes that use percussion, including conga drums, in in certain ways that probably Paul McCartney and John Lennon just had no idea what to do with, right? But it was George Martin who said, yeah, this is how we're going to do it. And, and this is how we're going to mix it with limited technology, mind you. And, and the same thing here. Um, yeah, just put the, the conga drums exactly where they need to be at the right levels uh, with the right microphones and, and balance that out with, with the guitar, with the, uh, the fabulous guitar playing. That fabulous guitar player had the good sense to not try to hog the spotlight. What's the point of having Michael Carabello and Jose Arias and Michael Shreve in your percussion section if you're not going to give them the space to do what they do? Let's talk more about those guys. Michael Carabello, man. Carabello's grandparents were from Puerto Rico, and they moved to the Mission District in San Francisco. He heard a lot of the music that they'd brought over while spending time with them at home. And he started hearing drummers in the park where he played baseball. And he started to hang around them. In the 50s, a conga player named Willie Bobo started coming to town to play with a jazz trio. And for Michael Carabello, that was that. Willie Bobo led him to all sorts of other Puerto Rican artists. And he doubled down on that deep dive when he joined Santana. That's how he came to love Tito Puente. And that's why he brought in his copy of Oye Como Va for the band to hear. So the next time you're thinking about how to best be a team player, think about being like the guy who said to Carlos Santana, hey man, you ever hear this before? Jose Chepito Arias. Congas, yes. But timbales, extra yes. Chepito was in a Latin jazz band in San Francisco called The Aliens when Carlos 
was 22 at the time, very shaggy, very shaggy. Uh, he approached him about joining the band. Chapito was already a big deal in Nicaragua, where he was from. And he was really starting to question his place with these long hairs in San Francisco. He'd come from a long line of musicians, and he held himself to a really high standard of playing and appearance. The first time all these folks met, uh, Carlos was wearing a t-shirt, torn jeans, and Chipito was wearing a suit and tie. His hair was fixed. Carlos's uh, bass player, David Brown, and keyboardist slash guitarist Greg Raleigh, and Carlos himself, all came down to check out Chipito's band, and they liked what they heard. They said they wanted to change the sound of Santana Blues Band to Latin rock. So they asked Chipito to teach them the Latin stuff, and Chipito said yes. It was a big yes. And that whole conversation was in Spanish. And Carlos was the only one that went out that night who could speak it. Chipito became later on the first Timbali player to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and for good reason. This album alone, I think, probably could have done that job. And we've met Michael Shreve. The man behind the kit was a kid when he joined the band. He was 17 years old. He'd started playing in the 8th grade and taking lessons from some obviously amazing teachers. And he was Santana ready before he'd even graduated high school. I was in a band when I was in high school. Obasi was fantastic. And we were like the second best band in our high school. We probably could have made an album like Abraxas if we really wanted to, but I choose to believe that it was a deliberate personal decision that we didn't. I didn't really play any Latin music or anything like that prior to Santana. And even when I was in Santana, any Latin type of playing that I did blending with those guys was not at all an uh, authentic type of Latin style. I, I brought more of a jazz, I aspired to be a jazz drummer. So I um, brought that kind of thing into the band. It's a it's an interesting story how I got in, in the band. I called a bunch of friends one day um, and asked if they'd like to go and see if we could sit in up at the Fillmore. Uh, there was a a thing called Super Session going on with Stephen Stills and Michael Bloomfield and Al Cooper. And um, everybody said, yeah, that's not going to happen. So I went up anyway. I borrowed my father's car and I went up and I went straight up to Michael Bloomfield, who was like the American Clapton, you yeah. know, he, he really was. And I pulled on his pant legs, you know, like reaching up and I, and I said, hey, I'm a drummer. Do you think I could sit in? And I'm just waiting for him to say no so I could go back home and say, well, I tried, you know. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, let me go ask the drummer. He's a really nice guy. So before I know it, I'm up on the stage, which is like the Mecca, you know. And I don't even, I don't even remember the experience. That's how traumatized I was. <laughs> but... However, afterwards, backstage, uh, the manager and the bass player of Santana were there. I had seen Santana. They were a very popular band. Yeah. They didn't have a record out yet. But um, uh, they came up to me and said, we're thinking about getting a drummer. And um, can we get your number? So I gave them my number, and I never really heard from them. So cut to about a year later, and I'm walking into a recording studio 
in San Mateo, California, which is south of San Francisco. And as I'm walking in, literally, the drummer in Santana is walking out. Now, I didn't know that they were there, but a couple of people remembered me and asked if I wanted to play, you know? Mm -hmm. So we played for a long time. And after that, they just brought me in a room and asked me if I wanted to join the band right there and then. And of course you say yes. I said, let me check my schedule. <laughs> so I, uh, they followed me home to my parents' house and I woke my parents up and I said, okay, see you later. And I got in the car with those guys and my journey began. David Brown rounded out the rhythm section on bass. If you've ever seen uh, the Santana at Woodstock video, David Brown stands out on that stage. Tall, black, had that kind of a Blinkeny beard that dudes had for a while in hippie times. Vest, no shirt, iconic look. He went to a school in San Francisco and he played bass at night with Latin jazz bands and at clubs. He was playing for touring groups like the Four Tops. He was walking up Grant Avenue in San Francisco in North Beach when he heard some music from a small club. He stepped in he sat in with the band, and he was approached by Stan Markham. Stan Markham would go on to become Santana's manager. His tight work and warm tones set up an amazing foundation for the rest of the section to build on. San Francisco was weird. There were almost too many good musicians. And then there's Greg Raleigh, the voice of Santana, the keys of Santana. He met Carlos after a friend saw the guitarist at the Fillmore and thought the three of them should jam. At that first meeting, there was some, uh, you know, marijuana smoking, like you do. And the cops showed up, like they do. And these boys... Hightailed it to a tomato patch. Seems as good a place to hide as any. And tomato patches are historically how all great bands together. Carlos and Greg meeting in a tomato patch? Sure. I think that's what happened to Mick and Keith, too. Raleigh's contribution to the success of Santana in the beginning was massive. And his lead singer status wasn't even a debate to the rest of the members. And though he's said that he's always been confused by the fact that not everybody who loves Santana even knows the name Greg Raleigh. That's kind of confusing to me, too. He did tell Rolling Stone once that he can't be mad, though. He was in on the dropping of Blues Band from the name. And he added that he knows that Raleigh is not nearly as cool-sounding as Santana. And Santana does sound really cool. Is this a good place to segue into Carlos Santana's sound? And how cool it is? Because I'm doing it. The main thing that I was learning is how to record a guitar that didn't sound thin or, or metallic 
something that hurts your ears or your teeth. I, I wanted to make my guitar sound like this, like flesh on flesh, like ooh. Here, Carlos raises both of his forearms into the frame of the Zoom call that we're on, and he rubs the insides of his forearms together, like a rock and roll cricket. The tone is like that, you know, so then you can like, hey, you can play with Roberta Flagg, you can play with Miles Davis, you can play with anyone, because they'll invite you back, because you, your tone is correct. So the thing that I was working back then still, and, and even today, is always on the tone. Because when you get the resonance, sound, vibration, and tone together, then people are going to open their heart and then their pockets to you. You know, because you make them, you make them feel you rearrange their molecular structure. You made them cry, and you made them laugh, and you make them dance, and shake off all the unnecessary feelings of not being worthy. You know. Yeah, that's, what, that's why Santana is so important. So yeah, our guy is out here trying to change hearts and minds and molecular structures with his guitar sound and more completely with his band. It's a marriage. A marriage of rhythm and melody. Drums is, me is, is the male. Melody is the female. See, the bad don't matter because they're going to get sooner or later in some kind of bad, you know? You put the melody and rhythm. Melody is female, rhythm is masculine. You know? And that's what I learned. As soon as I heard, you know, like congas with all the tunes, you know, Tito Puente, then, then I, I heard it with B.B. King. I've never seen B.B. King, I don't think, ever have congas in his band. But I, but I guarantee you, if he, if if he would have had, he would have changed the way he played really quick. Instead of playing, you know, almost like, Memphis Chicago blues, he was he'd be playing like BB King. Women would go, oh my God, Jesus, babe, sweet baby Jesus, you know? Because nothing drives women more crazy than a guajira. Nothing. It's a gift from Africa that makes women drop everything and go, instead of dancing, you know, they start dancing like I got this and you know you need it kind of thing, you know? And, and, and so God bless people in Africa for inventing what he does. Throughout the time that we spoke, Carlos wants to make it clear that he fully realizes that the sounds that he employs in Santana come from the African continent and the African diaspora. When I ask him if he felt a desire or a responsibility to bring Latin music to the forefront of his sound, he had this to say about Africa and the people there. They're richer in spirit than Donald Trump or are billionaires because they know how to celebrate with congas the real spirit beyond the zeros to the right. Yeah? So that's why drums is a gift from God. Drum, drums remind you that even chains are an illusion, man. And like before I even knew what was happening at that point, my fist was in the air in a black power salute. How did he do that? So that's the team. That's Santana. Those are the major players. This is what becomes known as Santana's classic lineup. And who would record 50 years ago their magnum opus. 
Abraxas. It's a word not many folks had heard before this album come out. And on the album's back cover, there's a quote by author Herman Hesse from his book, Damien. We stood before it and began to freeze inside from the exertion. We questioned the painting, berated it, made love to it, prayed to it. We called it mother, called it whore and slut, called it our beloved, called it Abraxas. And Herman Hess derived that from the Greek Abraxas, which I had to Google. Uh, it's a word of mystic meaning in the system of the Gnostic Basilides, which I also had to Google. So now I'm not feeling my smartest in this part of the research. So in case you also didn't know <laughs> what Gnosticism was about, let me help you out. Gnosticism says that humans are divine souls trapped in the ordinary physical and material world. They say that the world was made by an imperfect spirit. And that imperfect spirit is thought to be the same as the God of Abraham. And some Gnostic groups saw Jesus as sent by the Supreme Being to bring Gnosis to the earth. Okay. So let's apply that to the album. And where Carlos's spiritual journey was at the time. We can do that and infer that uh, Carlos was, was talking about the spirit world, the physical world. Or we could just ask Carlos what he thinks. What Abraxas to me, it also means, I think some people say abracadabra, yeah. which means shazam or let's conjure, let's manifest, you know, shaman. It's a shaman thing to... When Jesus created wine from water, he could have said abracadabra. You know, it's like, let it, which means let it be so. Let's create an alchemy, transmute water into wine. A transmutation from, from a smile, uh, from crying to a smile, that's alchemy. From one of the highest alchemies, better than gold, and you know, you create from lead to gold. It's from being miserable to being happy. You know, from unforgiveness to forgiveness, that's some serious abracadabra alchemy. So it seems also, much like the name of Santana for a band, that Abraxas kind of sounds cool. And the album opens cool. Singing Winds, Crying Beasts is no shade. I think what hippies hear when they die. It's the opening of the pearly gates to hippie heaven. This opening and its transition into black magic woman lets you know what you're in for. Movement. And movements. Here's Mark Brill. Uh, I love, for example, how uh, a lot of the tracks just go right one right into the other. Right? Mm -hmm. there's, no, uh, there's no beginning or end to some of the tracks. And again, I keep going back to Sgt. Pepper. That's the first three tracks on Sgt. Pepper are just that, right? Same thing here. Uh, the opening track, Singing Winds and Crying Beast, goes right into Black Magic Woman, which goes right into Gypsy Queen, 
Um, and then Oye Komova comes right in. It's it's a it's a continuous it's a continuous musical statement. This is Ashley Kahn. He wrote Carlos Santana's autobiography, which is called Universal Tone, Bringing My Story to Light. you got to understand that this album's coming out of the late 60s, early 70s period, when the idea of concept albums, um, of uh, albums that um, uh, were imagined as a fully conceived, uh, you know, long-form kind of uh, um, structure, was nothing new. Um, you know, whether it was The Who doing, uh, you know, uh, Tommy or the, the B-side of The Beatles, Abbey Road. Yeah. You know, the idea of, of tunes that segued smoothly from one track into another and that you were supposed to listen to it not as a single. I mean, you know, the, the idea of being a singles artist was actually becoming a a bad thing. It was. It was a. Uh, you know. Um, you know. For example, Led Zeppelin hated the idea of having any singles or radio push on their uh, albums because that's how they conceived the, the 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 full product. You know, the the full um, you know kind of statement, track by track by track. Um, and in the case of uh, Abraxas. They don't really give you much choice, you know, the way that, uh, especially those first uh, four tracks on side A, segue one into another into another. There's no clear uh, separation. There's no moment of silence, as uh, most people were used to. You were supposed to listen to it. And a lot of rock radio at the time followed through. And so they would, you would go from, you know, uh, uh, Black Magic Woman into Gypsy Queen, you know, uh, necessarily because it's it segue that way. Okay, so by now, it's kind of impossible to ignore how often the Beatles get brought up when talking about this era of Santana's music. But it's honestly really hard to talk about any popular music from 1970 without that happening. Even in retrospect. The Beatles had just broken up in the spring of 1970. This album, Abraxas, came out in the fall of 1970. And if musicians weren't eager to compare their work to what had just been done by the Fab Five in eight years, the Beatles were together for only eight years. If they weren't doing it, journalists were. Music writers were. And let's be real. The template for success that the Beatles set up for themselves worked really well for them. So now we're in the sweet spot of Abraxas, where the where some of the singles are. The big singles, anyway. Where Black Magic Woman slinks in. Carlos Santana has said that Black Magic Woman isn't about any woman in particular, but that everywhere he goes... Some woman insists that she's the black magic woman. Now listen, black girl magic is a thing. I'm black. I'm a woman. Do I think that black magic woman is about me? No. Not really. I wasn't born then. Do I, you know, retrofit myself into that story occasionally when I'm feeling particularly witchy? Yes. Yes, I do. Let's talk about song selection here. Arguably, or maybe objectively, 
the most recognizable section of this album starts here. And it's definitely worth noting that this point, through the end of Oya Como Va, are reworkings of other people's songs. Peter Green of Fleetwood Mac, Gabor Sabo, Tito Puente, an English blues rock guitarist, a Hungarian-American guitarist, and a Puerto Rican man who was perhaps the most famous timbali player in the world. That compositions by those three men with their individual styles could nestle right up next to each other on the A-side of this album and feel like Santana. I feel like that's part of that collective consciousness commonality that Carlos spoke about in the last episode. And part of that commonality is that each of them, along with each member of Santana, was really good at what they do. Here's Mark Brill. And, and of course, Peter Green was the great guitarist. And that's where he and Carlos Santana come together, is that they're both great guitarists. They're both on the Rolling Stone list of great guitarists. And yeah, that's a Peter Green tune. And I probably did not hear the Peter Green version of this when I was six years old, yeah. uh, but I have heard it uh, since then. And yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a great tune, right? Um, it, it's hard to disassociate. Uh, it's hard to, to call one the original, right? Even though Peter Green came before uh, with such a famous one, Carlos Santana. And I think the same thing is happening with Oye Como Va by Tito Puente. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had the good fortune of seeing Tito Puente about four or five times in concert uh, before he died. He died in something like the year 2000. Uh, and Tito Puente always had this fabulous story that he would tell at his concerts that he, that he Tito Puente, had been a working musician since the 40s, right? Mm-hmm. And he had released 30, 40 albums uh, in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s, and he'd never had a, a number one hit, right? He'd been successful, mostly in New York City, part of the whole Latin craze thing, but never had a, a number one hit. And then in the late 60s, this young Hispanic pipsqueak named Carlos Santana comes to Woodstock and steals his tune and makes a million dollars. And oh, he was so pissed. Tito Puente was so pissed because he'd been working for 30 years and never had a big hit. And this 18 year old steals his tune. And then Tito Puente would say at at his concerts, and then the royalty checks started to arrive. (laughs) And after that, continues Tito Puente, uh, he he got on the phone, called Carlos Santana and said, Hey, would you like to steal another one of my tunes? Both big singles from the album were covers. But let's keep it a hundred, everybody. We've all heard Santana's versions a million times more than we've heard the originals. And I'm not saying they're better, but it's one of those things where the artist doing the covering puts their stamp on it so hard that the song just kind of transfers over. Like Johnny Cash's Hurt, or Soft Cell, and Tainted Love. Now, if you've got a keyboardist like Greg Raleigh in your band, you probably don't need another guy on keys. But your band's not Santana. 
and you didn't have the wealth of talent to draw from that they did. So Carlos brought in some big guns in Alberto Gianquinto. He's a piano player and an OG in the Santana universe. He played guitar in the blues band and he arranged that first Santana album. And as a pianist, he and Carlos got together to compose Incident at Neshu Bar. Now this song has a pretty heavy story. Ostensibly, this is about the black revolutionary Toussaint Louverture, whose army defeated Napoleon during the Haitian Revolution. And that sounds like a perfectly good song inspiration. I'm all for black revolution. But there's no place called Nashabur on Haiti. Or any place that's associated with the Haitian Revolution. And Napoleon was never actually on Haiti. He sent his brother-in-law in his place to fight for France. Also, by the time Haitians had won the revolution, Toussaint Louverture had been dead for like a year. So there's a chance that Santana and Gianquinto confused the 1804 Haiti massacre, where almost the entire white population of Haiti was killed, with the destruction and subsequent massacre of the entire population of Nishapur in what is now Iran by the Mongols in 1221. And I mean, like, who among us hasn't made that mistake and then written a jazzy time signature changing piano-based rock number about it? this record over yes we're still flipping records it's 2020 we listen to wax still and flipping sides gives you an active role in the album so we're all in santana now flipping sides brings us to the chipito arias penned seacabo greg raleigh's keys and carlos's guitar are providing the melody but those timbales and congas are the real stars here. This is a perfect example of that marriage of masculine rhythm and feminine melody that Carlos was talking about earlier. Mother's Daughter. 
gives kind of a hindsight is twenty twenty kind of peek into the mind of the man that would eventually form Journey. That's not a diss, by the way. That's not. But this is one of the, the few times on the album where the band seems to have taken Bill Graham's advice and written a song with structure. And while there's no chorus to speak of, there are three distinct verses. And you know what that is? It's growth. Greg Raleigh joints uh, lean towards the heartbroken and the lonely and the sleeping with your girlfriend's mom? Weird. It took Samba Pati to get Santana on the UK charts. Carlos has said that with it, it was the first time he felt that he was really able to express himself, which is wild coming from a man who has a whole band named after him. It's also one of the songs that started driving a wedge in the group. Some in, in the band just didn't see Samba Pati as rock and roll. They didn't see it as party music. But Carlos Santana disagreed. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I try to compliment everyone's wishes and, and desires and aspirations. But then after a while, I found out that, you know, you outgrow things and certain musicians in the band wanted to go that way. And I said, I don't want to go that way. And they didn't want to come this way, you know. But from what I remember being sort of like the leader is that I did say, well, I'm going to put my foot down, man, because if you guys don't want to do Samba Pati or Oyo Como Ba, you know, and, and you guys say that it's not rock and roll, then you're going to have to get another guitar player. You know, because to me, Samba Pati and Oyo Como Ba, they're just as big as uh, Let It Be or Satisfaction or Marvin Gaye, uh, Heard It to the Great But I mean, to me, Saturday night, and Friday and Saturday night party music is Friday night Saturday party music, you know? Like, people forget that, like, who let the dogs out or La Bamba or Watermelon Man or, you know. There's certain songs that go outside of the color and becomes, like, you know, wild thing, <clears throat> you know? And everybody starts singing it. So I kind of convinced the band that if they didn't do the songs that I wanted to do, they had to get somebody else. Mark Brill. I guess he, he was walking down the street in San Francisco one day and heard a guitarist playing it with, with a samba rhythm, as I understand it, and said, wow, this guy's pretty good, but hey, I can do that too. And he came up with that great opening uh, guitar uh, lick at the beginning. Um, and I love how the piece just gradually evolves and, and becomes more and more complex, and then by the end of the piece, it's a full-fledged uh, shuffling samba, right? Chicka, 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 which is, which is great, but it did start out that way, and it starts very soulful and mournful. Um, 
and again, like like Oye uh, Como Va, a perfect backdrop for for Carlos's guitar, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah, in, in many respects, both Oye Como Va and Samba Pati are just back, background vamps, right? They're not complex songs at all. It's just yeah. let's just vamp for four and a half minutes and let Carlos do his magic, and and it worked. Right. And that brings us to Hope You're Feeling Better. Remember I said these Raleigh songs are usually about loneliness and heartbreak? But hey, there's verses. Well, that still applies here. But check it out. This one has a chorus. And the whole thing is a read. It's a self-read introspective read this internal burn is about someone who's losing their friends moving away losing their child someone probably really needed to do a wellness check on Greg Raleigh at this time but nobody could ever say this wasn't Friday Saturday night party rock and roll If you ever need help figuring out how to end an album, an album that features unbelievable guitar work, an album by a multicultural group of musicians, an album that takes full advantage of what at the time was perhaps the world's best rock percussion section, well, let me tell you about a little song called El Nicoya. Uh, El Nicoya. It's what you call people from Nicaragua. And Chipito Arias, well, he's from Nicaragua. And the words to the song are pretty much just that. Let's go, Chipito. Let's go. La 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 la, you get it. It's a, it's a rallying cry to the man behind the timbales. It's that street gang that Michael Shreve talked about. It's how they get themselves pumped up. And yes, it's the last song on the album, but where else would you put it? It's exciting. I think the first rule of entertainment is always leave them wanting more. You want more Santana after this. And don't worry, I mean, we can look back and be... We got plenty of Santana. But wouldn't that make you, wouldn't this song make you want to find the nearest place where Santana was playing and buy a ticket? Drive however long it would take. Doesn't El Nicoya make you want more? It should. I can't get over it. (laughs) It's... One of the most dynamic songs of the 1970s. 
Texas. It's a 50-year-old album. It's very much of its time. It's very much of its place. And it's very much of the scene that existed within that. But it's also very much universal and very much standing just as strong as it did 50 years ago. It was made by a group of men whose level of talent was as high as their ability to handle the lifestyle and adulation that fame would bring was low. This classic lineup would not last for much longer. Money, drugs, women, the law. It was wild. But the influence that the music that they made would have on the generations of songwriters that followed is massive. The iconography of the album cover even left an impact. And in the next episode of The Opus, we'll talk about just that with artists who have played with Santana, artists who have opened for Santana, and artists who've loved Santana, like A.J. Davila. He's a hip-hop producer and the frontman of Puerto Rican punk band Davila 666. He wears his heart on his sleeve for Santana. And it's honestly a pleasure to talk to fans of Santana's, who I'm also a fan of. I, I learned a lot of about music, you know what I mean? Digging, looking for music. I, I, I learned a lot. And how, how the album starts is insane because it starts like, it starts like, you know, it, 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 it gives me goosebumps because it starts kind of like a Lost Supreme of uh, a John Coltrane, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. With, the, with the symbols and everything, it starts with that. But then we go to fucking the doors, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> on, on the electric piano, we go to the doors, you know what I mean? And it's amazing because, like, you know, like, uh, Carlos Santana, he's been so influenced by B.B. King, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like it, 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 it's on the sound, but but he put it on rock, uh, on on rock music, and like, damn that 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 introduction for the people when you put like the album is mind blowing. Abraxas is mind blowing. The singles are embedded into rock legend, and as a whole, as a series of suites and movements. It's a masterpiece. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is The Opus. I'll see you next time.
Consequence Podcast Network. What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.